Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Our breaking news. We're awaiting the Senate vote tonight on the debt ceiling bill. We'll take you live to Capitol Hill to see if there are any last-minute obstacles. And more follow-up to Donald Trump caught on tape discussing a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. Now, Team Trump is trying to defend the former president with an array of different excuses. So we will fact-check what they're saying. Plus, how the anti-drag law in the Sunshine State is raining on pride parades this year. I was in the closet for so many years, and I still face hatred and oppression, and I can't even go to my own pride fest. Okay, my panel has thoughts on all of this. Also, we have new K-File investigative reporting tonight on Ron DeSantis and his flip-flop on Dr. Fauci. On the campaign trail, DeSantis calls Dr. Fauci nasty names. But that's an about-face from what he said about Dr. Fauci at the height of the pandemic. If you are faced with a destructive bureaucrat in your midst like a Fauci, you do not empower somebody like Fauci. You bring him into the office and you tell him to pack his bags. You are fired. From Dr. Burks to Dr. Fauci to the vice president, who's worked very hard, um, the Surgeon General, uh, they, they are really doing a good job. It's a tough, tough situation, but, but they're working hard. Okay, we will play more of those flip-flops for you. But let's begin with the debt ceiling vote tonight in the Senate. Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill. So, Melanie, the vote looks like it's moving at lightning speed. What's happening at this very moment? Yeah, Allison, that is what we call Senate magic, because they can actually move very quickly when they want to. And in this case, they absolutely are pushing to get this done tonight. They are just in the process of wrapping up some votes on amendments. None of those are expected to pass. And then they're going to move immediately to final passage. So that could happen really within the next 30 minutes. And we are expecting it to pass. Then the final step will be to go to President Biden's desk for signature. But I want to point out that this was actually a very rocky road to get here. It took weeks of intense negotiations. There was multiple breakdowns. And even just getting a time agreement to fast track this bill in the Senate tonight took some cajoling because there were some Republican defense hawks and Republican appropriators who were really worried about this bill's impact on the spending process going forward, worried about cuts to key defense programs. And so in order to earn their cooperation, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell put out a rare joint statement saying they are committed to passing all individual 12 appropriations bills on the Senate floor in order to avoid a 1% across-the-board spending cut that would be mandated by this bill if they don't pass all those bills. And then Schumer also took to the floor and made a floor speech where he said they have other means like the supplemental appropriations bills to try to pass emergency aid packages, including for Ukraine. But Republicans weren't the only ones with concerns. There was Democrats. They don't like the work requirements, stricter work requirements for food stamp recipients. They didn't like some of the new energy permitting reforms. So there was a lot of members on both sides of the aisle who were grumbling over this bill. But in the end, we are expecting members from both sides of the aisle to come together and to avoid what would be the first ever catastrophic default. Okay, Melanie, thank you for all of that. Please keep an eye on everything that's happening there on Capitol Hill and update us as soon as you have more. But let's turn now to the fallout over our CNN reporting about that audio tape of Donald Trump talking about a classified Pentagon document about Iran. That's a document that he held on to after leaving the White House. Here with me tonight, we have our favorite reality checker, John Avalon, former Congressman Lee Zeldin, inside columnist Lynette Lopez, and our legal genius, Elliot Honig. Um, great to have you. That's good. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Congressman, let me start with you. You are a supporter of Donald Trump um, in this presidential race, yes? 
I have endorsed him. Okay. Are you comfortable with the fact that he held on to that classified document and that he was talking about it at his golf club with people who do not have security clearances? Well, clearly, a change has to get made because this isn't uh, just an issue involving uh, President Trump. Uh, what's come out over the course of the last year is that uh, multiple former uh, president, vice presidents, uh, as leaving, they uh, have taken classified documents with them. But they weren't waving it around at a golf club. Well, we don't know if he was waving it around. They weren't, they weren't disclosing it and talking about it with people who don't have security clearances out in the open at a golf club. So is that I, a distinction I, on, that honestly, you honestly don't know what conversations uh, the others have had about the documents that, that they had or what those documents were. Uh, all we know is that they had left with classified documents. Uh, is a you know there's a interesting dynamic when someone takes classified documents and they're trying to cause harm purposefully to the United States of America. One added dynamic when you take that away is that in this case it's someone who has the power to declassify documents. It's one thing if you're you know a specialist you don't have the ability to do that. But so do you there's think a legal that this was declassified. Do you, do you think that Donald Trump? declassified this document? So this is a legal question. So his defense is going to be that, that, that he uh, believes that he did. And what happens, I mean, he, the burden of proof is going to be on the prosecution to yeah. prove the elements of this case beyond a reasonable doubt. The thing about this audio, just, their, just, 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 just sure. to correct this, is that it shows that he didn't think that he had the power to. Mm-hmm. The point was, he said, I wish I could show this to you, but it's classified, and so I'm not able to declassify it because of these rules. All, all, a, back, all a back and forth that would, if it got to it, be uh, settled uh, in a court of law. Uh, what's, what's an interesting dynamic when you make that argument your self-defense, you claim that you declassified a particular document, uh, then that is considered, you, and you testified to that under oath, that is evidence as, as well. So the burden becomes even more difficult. Do you have other witnesses that you with those individual something? documents to contradict what the defendant in, in, a, in a particular case related to classified documents Okay. Uh, is claiming. So what we're talking about is the back and forth of how this plays out in the court of law. There's different interpretations of federal law, and there's a lot of confidence on both sides of this argument uh, in their argument. Yep. If it gets to that point, uh, this is going to be a unique case because we're not talking about a case where someone is you know, is taking the document to try to cause harm. Well, we don't know why. States. We don't well, know why uh, President this Trump This can't be compared to don't... like... I'm you know, not someone it. We just, who um, yeah, we is, don't know what his motivation is. Is what I'm saying. Like, there, I mean, the the the, the, mo- the the high profile case from a few months ago, where yep. the you know, the person was on like the gaming platform. Fair, and, fair, but we just don't know what his motivation is. And luckily, we do have a lawyer here, Ellie. So it is, of course, true that Joe Biden, Mike Pence, and Donald Trump all had classified documents in their possession. But that is just the beginning of the inquiry as to what's criminal and what's not. And really, you have to look at two main things: knowledge and intent. It's, we don't know whether Joe Biden or Mike Pence knew they had classified documents. They've denied it. Donald Trump has many times over acknowledged that he knew. And in this new recording that we have reporting on, he again acknowledges that he knows he has classified documents. Then you get into the question of intent. What was he going to do with these? Now, he's not posting them online on a gaming platform. But one of the really important things about this reporting is it gives us the first indication of what on earth was he doing with these documents. And what is he doing in this scenario? He's trying to persuade some journalists to spin things his way for political advantage by sort of flaunting, I have this classified information. Now, that's not as bad as selling information to a foreign adversary or posting it online, but that's still a bad intent. And that's Mm -hmm. a big difference. And is it against the law? 
Yeah, I mean, the argument prosecutors will make, well, look, there's going to be an argument here, but the ar- prosecutors are, are going to argue he had knowledge and he had intent. And the classification issue also goes to intent because, look, there's just no squaring his statements with this, what's on that tape. He has said many times over, including on our air here at CNN, I declassified, I declassified. In this recording, he's saying this is classified after right. he's left office. Yeah. So that you just can't square those things. Go ahead, John. Well, look, that, that's the fundamental difference here, Lee. I mean, you know, Ali asked you a pretty direct question. Is it wrong for a former president to take classified documents um, and, in this case, on tape, acknowledge they're classified, which is why he couldn't show them to other people but was branding them around? That's a pretty easy yes or no question, I think. Well, I mean, the, the, easy, yes or no? the easy answer is that a classified document, no matter who you are, whether you're the president of the United States or you're a private in the military, should be handled to a, a highest level of standard to be able to protect the document. So, so it was wrong for Donald Trump to have classified documents be brandishing them in, in a meeting? So uh, going Easy yes or no? If, if he is, in fact, taking classified documents uh, out of the White House... Uh, which is an issue that is a question that that pertains to President Biden when he left with Vice President. Just focus Pence on this case. Left. No, no. But it's this is one of the challenges for the Department of Justice because if you want to go after President Trump on this, you're saying that you should not be leaving the White House with classified documents. The question that's posed, this, this is this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I, I get the, the systemic issue, but it seems like you're tiptoeing up to saying no, it's well, wrong, which is pretty obviously no, no, no. true, I, I, but yes. you're reluctant to say it. No, not, not true, because you said yes or no. I said it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're president of the United States or you're a private in the military. It's important so it's wrong to have Donald a Trump. high stand. There is an issue here with regards to what happens with records at the end of a presidency, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. vice presidency, because clearly there are multiple people now, whether you're talking about President Trump, Vice President Pence, Vice President Biden, yeah. and who knows I take your who point. else. I take your point. There's a systemic problem. Yeah, it's a broader point that they need to do better record keeping. But the distinction seems to be that the other two gentlemen that we're talking about say that they didn't know they had it, and Donald Trump says that he did know that he and had can it. And can we just note that Mar-a-Lago is a security eyesore? We have seen more than one or two or three times individuals with ties to the Chinese Communist Party and to the Kremlin this was and a Bedminster, by all, the way. His yeah. other, all, yes. I mean, all of his clubs are a there. security disaster, and they have been the entire through his presidency. So the the knowledge that he was talking about this in what can I I can only imagine is a Donald Trump tone of voice, which is not a whisper, um, in his club, which is a public place where we know that there have been very shady characters about. It's very disconcerting. Uh, Pence does not have a golf club where. The CCP hangs out, and neither does uh, Joe Biden. Here's something interesting, Ellie, that I want to get your take on. Um, this is what Tim Parlatore was saying. This is a former um, Donald Trump attorney. Uh, I want to play the one where he's saying that this is actually a failure of the National Archives and get you to respond sure. to this. So listen to this. Whether it was classified or declassified is not really something that's relevant to the statute that we're talking about here, because really what DOJ is investigating is willful retention of national defense information. Whether it's classified or declassified is not an element of that offense. Okay, so the one that I was hoping that we were talking about is where he says, um, I don't think this warrants an indictment. This is a situation where failure of process is what led to documents leaving the White House, going to Mar-a-Lago, failure of the National Archives to get a facility in Palm Beach, as they have for every other president since Reagan, a facility within the hometown of the president where they move the documents to. So 
What, wh why did the National Archives have to set up a uh, facility? I'm going to respond to both of the, both, the, both what they showed you. us and what you said. Yeah. Um, let's assume that's correct. Let's assume that archives, unlike the way they've treated other presidents, didn't get Donald Trump a, a security facility. Not to be over-legalistic about it, but so what? I mean, that, that, that is an interesting point, maybe, to note as to how this happened. But if he still has these documents, he knows he has them, he's misusing them, and he's sort of flouting them about, then... That's a crime. This is not a defense. It's an interesting point, I guess. And it might score a half a point with a jury, but it is not a defense. The other point he's making as to classification is actually interesting. I actually subscribe to the legal view that the president does have unilateral declassification power and does not have to go through any checklist that any bureaucrat made up. However, the question is, did he actually use that declassification but power? But if he has unilateral documents? power, does he yeah. have to tell someone when he decides something's declassified? So the reason we have these checklists and these bureaucratic framework is so it's done in an orderly fashion that people know about. But yeah, there needs to be some evidence that he actually did it while he was president. To this point, we've seen no such evidence, and this new recording flatly contradicts that he yeah. ever did declassify. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you all very much for all the thoughts on this. Next, we have new K-File reporting on what Ron DeSantis says now and what he said in the past about Dr. Fauci. Hint, they're very different. Stick around for that. Ron DeSantis is starting to attack former President Trump pretty regularly on the campaign trail. And one line of attack is about trusting Dr. Fauci. I think he did great for three years, but when he turned the country over to Fauci in March of 2020, that destroyed millions of people's lives. Well, tonight we have new reporting from CNN's K-File on how DeSantis has definitely changed his tune on Dr. Fauci. My panel is back. We're also joined by Andrew Kaczynski from the K-File. Okay, so tell us what you've found about what DeSantis used to say versus what he is saying today about Dr. Fauci. Yeah, that's right. There is some pandemic revisionism going on with these DeSantis attacks on Donald Trump. Now he is attacking Trump for praising Fauci. We've seen his campaign do that. We've seen that he said uh, that he turned the country over to Fauci. Now, DeSantis was praising Dr. Fauci at March and April of 2020 at the exact same time that Donald Trump was. Uh, DeSantis in Florida was citing Dr. Fauci's uh, guidance. I think he said he deferred to his judgment to put in place these policies that he's now referring to as lockdowns. Now, take a listen to this clip here uh, of DeSantis talking about Fauci uh, in March 2020. We chose freedom over Fauciism, and the state of Florida is better off as a result of doing that. From Dr. Burks to Dr. Fauci to the vice president, who's worked very hard, um, the Surgeon General, uh, they, they are really doing a good job. It's a tough, tough situation, but, but they're working hard. Yeah, I mean, so basically nowadays on the campaign trail, he's um, acting as though he, Dr. Fauci was some sort of totalitarian who, you know, was in forcing everybody into lockdown. But back then, I mean, you even found um, from that same speech, I believe, where he said that, that Dr. Fauci was really, really good and really, really helpful. So yeah. what changed? And, you know, what's interesting about this is it's almost ironic in that Trump and DeSantis pretty much have the same position on the pandemic. Like, this is not some uh, investigative hit where we're going back 30 years. This was three years ago. We all remember this. Trump was calling in April and May to open up the country. Trump was attacking Dr. Fauci on Twitter. He was making statements in April of May of 2020. And who was one of the first governors to open up? Ron DeSantis. And then 
Donald Trump ended up praising him for it. But so then, Andrew, to that point, isn't it possible that that, um, Governor DeSantis has just evolved or changed his position in terms of whether or not businesses should have been closed? No, he he, he absolutely has changed his position. I mean, maybe not in a a hypocritical way. He just feels differently. What we're seeing here from him is they're attacking the Trump campaign. They're taking quotes from Donald Trump where Donald Trump is saying, oh, we needed to shut down the country. He's talking about March. He's talking about April of 2020. These were the shutdowns. These are the same shutdowns that Ron DeSantis advocated in Florida. So what the DeSantis campaign is doing is they're maybe possibly cherry picking a quote from Trump here or there to say that Trump supports shutdowns. But as we all remember, Trump was right out there and he took a lot of heat for that when he was calling for these reopenings so early uh, in the spring. Can you imagine a politician cherry picking a quote out of context? We're about to watch their tune. Ron DeSantis is going to twist himself into a pretzel you'd buy at the mall. And that's what you're going to that's running after Trump, untrumping Trump, over trumping Trump, under trumping. It's hard to find the line where the Trump people still like you and the independents like you, too. And I don't know if Ron can do that being more Trump, but also less Trump than Trump. Honestly, I'm confused. So will this about face, will it, uh, will people hold it against Ron DeSantis? The Trump people will. And I think Andrew's, as usual, K-file strikes again to point out the hypocrisy. I think the question is whether hypocrisy still sticks in a Trump Republican party. True, does it matter? Um, d- does it matter? It used to be the unforgivable sin in politics. That was before Donald Trump. It doesn't stick on Trump. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the larger point is, look, in the beginning of March, everyone's galvanizing. And then all of a sudden... Uh, not only the, the pandemic kicks in, but that particular form of cynicism that says what unites us in the Republican with the Republican base is to own the libs. And then all of a sudden to define demonize do- Dr. Fauci and fundraise off, to, off of demonizing Dr. Fauci. What do you think, Congressman? Well, while it was the worst of times when COVID first hit, my best memory of it was how well everyone was working together, whether mm-hmm. you're Republican or Democrat, whether you're the president, Congress, mayors, governors, uh, I was here in New York with a President Trump, a Governor Cuomo, and and members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. Everyone just wanted to work together to get stuff done. For the first few weeks, quite frankly, no one really knew exactly what was happening. Mm-hmm. What we did know is that we needed to be as best prepared as we can for what could end up being the worst case scenario. And and really, it's it's hard to find contrast and division in those initial few weeks. And it doesn't matter whether you are the furthest left or furthest right, what party you are, or what level of government you are. Everybody was working together. And, what do you think about Governor DeSantis now changing his tune? So I, I think, well, after you get through those first few weeks and as more information starts coming out, now you have governors taking two very different paths across the country. Uh, there was different schedules for reopening. There was different policies on masks and then different policies on, on vaccine mandates. Uh, Governor DeSantis was somebody who was one of the first governors who was uh, seeking to reopen his state. I remember Governor Kemp doing that in Georgia, and it was a big contrast and controversy with these other states where they're saying, hey, you can't reopen this quickly. And there are other states at the other extreme that were volunteering themselves to be the last to reopen. Does that make Dr. Fauci's advice in March of 2020 now wrong? So my my biggest concern, my biggest concern back in March, April was, you know, that that Dr. Dr. Fauci was looking at this from a health standpoint. Mm -hmm. 
And there were so many other dynamics of it. There were impacts on, on kids, on their, you know, getting them back into school, the remote learning, not having access to broadband. And that's just one yeah. specific example, the, the impact on the economy. Dr. Fauci, is, he was not there to be an economic expert. Mm-hmm. So what I think would have been much better if you were to overanalyze that moment is if you had, you know, if, if somebody is there as a health expert or health experts, and you also have people who are economic experts and folks who are out there sticking up for the kids, and you're coming up with decisions that are more of a balance, uh, then I think that there would have been uh, a better solution struck. Yeah. But it is true for, I mean, for Governor DeSantis to talk about how he was one of the first states, one of the first governors yes. to be reopening. But it, go back to March, everybody was getting along what, uh, at every level. What's of um, getting in your craw, John? I think it's that the politicization of the pandemic ended up contributing to the deaths of over a million Americans. And I think what Lee is saying is those initial days when we were united, um, in, in some ways that showed the best of the country in rallying to a crisis. And then the politicization of the pandemic occurred. And different states had different solutions, which is difficult to do during a pandemic. Uh, the laboratories of democracy, as, as we all know, they are. But that politicization ended up spreading disinformation and that contributed to the deaths of people who didn't need to die. And I don't remember Dr. Fauci stopping Ron DeSantis from doing anything that he did as Florida governor. So I don't know. He was, he was critical of him in July. Do- Dr. Fauci was critical was, of him in July. He was because, critical of yeah. the Because he the was taking it from a medical point of view. Yeah. Yes. And Ron DeSantis was taking it from a business and economic point well, of view. Well, also then and, the, the, the kids needed to be in school. Yes. And so when he called, That's but true. when he now calls Dr. Fauci a destructive bureaucrat, that is different than how he felt yes, about him. Yes, and I think a, taking his guidance. a big part of this too is that the attacks on Trump, it's are, are hypocritical because the quotes that he's using to attack Trump are from that same time period that that uh, like Congressman Zeldin said, where everybody was along the same page. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much for unearthing this and sharing it with us, Andrew. Great to see you. Okay. President Biden is fine tonight, according to the White House, after he tripped on a sandbag and fell at the Air Force Academy today. Dr. Reiner is going to be with us after this to tell us what he sees and if this is happening too often. The White House says President Biden is fine tonight, hours after he tripped and fell during a graduation ceremony at the Air Force Academy. The president landed, as you'll see, on his right side there before being helped up pretty quickly. The White House says President Biden tripped on a sandbag as he was making his way back to his seat. The president then poked fun at himself as he returned to the White House. All right, let's bring in CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He also advised the White House medical team under George W. Bush. Dr. Reiner, great to see you. Was that fall that you just saw cause for concern to you? Well, it was bad optics, certainly, for the president, but he, he tripped on, on the sandbag. Uh, we learned a little bit about uh, the president's gait from uh, his doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Kevin O'Connor, uh, after the president had his physical uh, this February. And what Dr. O'Connor said is that the president does have a, you know, a fairly sort of stiff gait. Uh, it's pretty noticeable that he, he takes relatively short steps. He almost shuffles his feet. And uh, Dr. O'Connor you know, had uh, some of his uh, neurology advisors uh, assess the president to look for any neurologic cause. And it, it appears that the conclusion was that he's very arthritic and he's very stiff and he walks with a stiff gait. 
And when you do that, you don't have a lot of sort of agility. So when, when your foot catches a sandbag, you go down. Uh, and we've seen the president fall a couple of other times going up the stairs of Air Force One. And if you don't get your leg up high enough, if you're a little bit stiff and you catch the step and you're trying to jog up the, the steps pretty quickly because otherwise you're in pretty good shape, you know, you go down. So I think the optics were bad. I don't think it means anything in terms of the president's you know, physical capacity or his overall uh, condition right now. I mean, obviously, when an 80-year-old falls, it's always cause for concern because the fall can create, you know, uh, cascading problems. But there's also concern if there's something going on, as you say, neurological, that's causing the fall. But you're saying that that has been ruled out because of his his recent checkup and it is more physical? Yeah, Dr. O'Connor actually, uh, I think in his in his basically four-page note, addressed that. And I think they look for things like Parkinson's. Sometimes, you know, Parkinson's, which is a neurodegenerative disease that affects the cells that um, uh, secrete dopamine, that can cause, you know, similar kinds of, of, of appearances of gait. You, know, you see people taking short, short steps. But the president apparently doesn't have any of the other stigmata of that, and they didn't think he had Parkinson's. And it appears that the president is just 80 years old, and we know that 80-year-olds fall. It's thought that about one out of every four people over the age of 65 will fall in any given year. There are millions of, there are about 3 million uh, ER visits a year for mechanical faults. It's one of the most common reasons people come to the ER. But older people uh, fall more commonly. And once someone falls, they're more likely to fall again. Now, the sequelae of falling can be severe for an 80-year-old. You can break a hip, and that can be absolutely life-changing or life-ending if you break a hip. And the president takes a blood thinner for uh, atrial fibrillation. And if you're on a blood thinner, you're more likely to uh, bleed as a, conse- as a consequence of a fall. So these are not you know, so benign. And while the, I think the worst part of today for the president uh, was the political optics, I don't think there is really any, uh, this is not some sort of uh, ominous talisman about his medical condition. I fell uh, in the hallway because I was wearing high heels and walking um, too fast uh, recently. Well, it was actually about three years ago now, come to think of it. And it's so startling as an adult when you fall. It just like it knocks the wind out of you. And it's so you can't believe that you just fell. And he got up a lot faster than I did. Are you encouraged that you saw him back at the White House looking pretty spry? Yeah. Yeah. Like otherwise, the president, you know, appears to be in pretty good physical condition. I'll note that even more startling this week, Bruce Springsteen took a fall on stage and uh, he was uh, uh, on his uh, back for quite a bit longer than the president today. That is excellent context. Thank you very much, Dr. Reiner. Really appreciate talking to you. My pleasure. Okay, a graduation speech by a student is drawing criticism, including from our Congressman Lee Zeldin here. Um, What did she say? And why are so many people taking offense? We'll see what our rest of the panel thinks. Is this freedom of speech or something else? That's next. The commencement address given by a student at the City University of New York School of Law's graduation ceremony is drawing sharp criticism. The student's remarks are condemned as anti-Israel. She also had harsh words for the New York Police Department, the U.S. military, and the school itself. Here it is. This school's mission statement is void of value. 
that as Israel continues to indiscriminately rain bullets and bombs on worshipers, murdering the old, the young, attacking even funerals and graveyards as it encourages lynch mobs to target Palestinian homes and businesses as it imprisons its children, as it continues its project of settler colonialism, expelling Palestinians from their homes in spite of the racism, in spite of the selective activism, the self-serving interests of CUNY Central, an institution that continues to fail us, that continues to train and cooperate with the fascist NYPD, the military, that continues to train IDF soldiers to carry out that same violence globally, a larger institution committed to its donors, not to its students. All right, we're back with our panel. Um, Congressman, uh, is that freedom of speech? It's hate speech. Uh, and by the way, you're just playing a clip. Uh, you know, she was talking about this. Now she's getting her law degree in the system that she is uh, getting involved in the, the rule of law. She was talking about how it was white supremacist and, and how it needs to get torn down. Uh, she was using other rhetoric where, you know, if you're with the administration and you have the opposing view to what she's saying, it's because you're getting bought off by investors, which is, you know, a long time anti-Semitic trope. So th- there's a lot of other stuff as well. And on top of the, the clip that you just played, you graduate, it's your commencement ceremony. You're there with family, friends. This is your dream. You've worked hard for it. You should be able to enjoy that moment without having to experience that what makes this worse is that the University of New York has had an issue for the last few years, and it's been growing. The city council would, uh, scheduled a hearing a few months ago around the schedule of the CUNY chancellor. He ends up no-showing. Last year at the CUNY Law commencement address, there was another speaker who ends up being criticized for similar reasons. There was a professor who was giving a sermon on a Sunday in New Jersey a couple years ago talking about death to Israel. Uh, You have Jewish faculty uh, resigning from jobs that they loved because the faculty student administration was passing resolutions that made them feel unwelcome. Uh, I believe that there needs to be a change of the administration at CUNY. I believe uh, that that all Jewish students and Jewish faculty should feel welcome at CUNY of, of all faiths, of all backgrounds. Uh, and you can't go for you know, a third time not being a charm next year. You have to stand up and do something now. Uh, and this isn't about just Jews being offended. There are other b- people being offended. CUNY has an issue that needs to get addressed. And just, just saying that what we experienced, what we heard, what we listened to is bad, uh, and then we don't do anything about it, it's going to continue to get worse and metastasize in a worse way at the, at the university. I have the CUNY statement, John. I'll read it for everybody. They said, in response to this, this is from the Board of Trustees and the Chancellor of CUNY, uh, free speech is precious, but often messy, and it is vital to the foundation of higher education. Hate speech, however, should not be confused with free speech and has no place on our campuses in our city or our state or our nation. The remarks by a student-selected speaker at the CUNY Law School graduation unfortunately fell into the category of hate speech, as they were a public expression of hate toward people and communities based on their religion, race, or political affiliation. The Board of Trustees of the City University of New York can condemns such hate speech. Here's what's interesting, John. We asked them if they were aware that she was going to give this commencement speech. And it's very unsatisfying, quite frankly, what they said. They said that the CUNY Law School dean, um, Suda Seti, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, saw a first draft of this commencement speech delivered by Fatima Mohammed, who is that student. Um, There is no approval process for the speech However, the spokesperson said we strongly encourage speakers to work with us on tone and time limits. So we have no idea if they saw those comments or if she, if the student inserted them after this dean 
uh, maybe signed off on the first draft. That's right. And we, we should get to the bottom of that. The, 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 what you just saw was a very clear condemnation by CUNY. Um, and look, it was, to my judgment, a loathsome speech. It was anti-Semitic. It was anti-Israel. Calling the NYPD fascist is, is, is absurd and insulting and ridiculous. And also, I mean, CUNY University is the City University of New York. It's a great institution. It's also taxpayer-supported. So, you know, the conspiracy is about, you know, listening to the donors is, 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 is off base, among many, many other problems. It's also a fact that, well, Cutie's called this hate speech. Um, she's a student exercising First Amendment rights. Um, and you can condemn it clearly. And I see no reason why most folks wouldn't. While also saying, as a student, you know, she may have had a right to give the speech, but that shouldn't be licensed, and she should be roundly condemned for it. It's, it's, it's a totally offensive speech, particularly at a public, public taxpayer-funded university. Um, Lynette, we uh, should tell everybody that CNN has made multiple attempts to contact Fatima Mohammed, the student there, to get her response to all this, but we have, uh, to no avail, been able to make contact. What are your thoughts? It's really hard to have real conversations about what the political situation is in Israel when there is hate speech surrounding its very existence to survive. Like, it just blows those conversations out of the water. This is a very complicated situation. And we do not start from a place from Israel should not exist. Israel mm-hmm. has every right to exist, mm-hmm. period. And so that's that I, I don't agree with all that's going on with the settlements, but that's like a whole different conversation from just saying, we don't have Israel, Israel should not exist. And that's, that's where this is very upsetting because now we have a hate-filled conversation. We have a conversation that doesn't actually get to any solution-making or the heart of the matter. It, it's a disgraceful speech in every respect. And I think the solution for bad speech is more speech. Exactly right. right. And good on Cooney for coming out with, with a solid condemnation of this. And we're talking about it and condemning it too. And I think people can disagree, but this is an utterly disgraceful display by this student. Thank you all for that. We do want to go to Melanie Zanona now. She's live for us on Capitol Hill, as promised, because the senators, we understand, are voting right now. Tell us all the color that's happening there. Yeah, that's exactly right, Allison. As we speak, the Senate is voting on final passage of a bill, a bill that would raise the debt ceiling until 2025 and also limit future spending. They're working quickly. I'm watching the floor as we speak. They need 60 votes for this to pass in the Senate. So it is going to take some cooperation from both sides of the aisle. But, Allison, we are expecting them to be able to pass this any moment. They've actually been working through amendment votes tonight through lightning speed, trying to get out of here as quickly as possible. None of those amendments did pass, but that was part of their agreement to try to move things along and speed things along because the default deadline is just days away. So it looks like Congress is going to be able to avoid economic catastrophe with just days to go until the deadline. But it was no easy feat to get here, Allison. Half of the battle was just hammering out this agreement between President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They were trying to hammer out a fiscal complicated agreement. Usually these things take months to negotiate, and they did it in a matter of weeks. There's blowups along the way. At times it looked like things were going off the rail. But then they got there. And then the second half of the battle was selling it to members. There was a lot of concern on both sides of the aisle. Democrats and Republicans alike had concerns over this bill. Democrats in particular worried about the stricter work requirements for food stamp recipients. They also did not like some of the permitting reforms for energy projects. And then you had Republicans, particularly conservatives over on the House side, who does not who do not like that this bill is going to extend the debt ceiling for as long as it is. They don't think the spending 
cuts go far enough. In the Senate, you had Republican defense hawks who were worried about the impacts on future defense spending. But in the end, we are expecting a bipartisan coalition to come together, deliver a win for President Biden and their party leadership, and avoid what would have, would have been the first ever default, Allison. Okay, Melanie, we will check back with you throughout the next hour also so that you can monitor what's happening there. I mean, there could be some sort of succession surprise ending. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. All right, meanwhile, is Taylor Swift getting her fans too excited? We'll tell you about the brain dysfunction that fans are reporting after seeing her concerts. That's next. It's me. fans are experiencing something crazy. It's called post-concert amnesia. Several Swifties say they cannot remember the concert because, well, the, the excitement was overwhelming. So one user on Reddit says, does anyone else feel like they kind of disassociated during the concert? Another asks, anyone else experiencing this? I'd waited half a year for this moment, and now that it's over, my brain seems to be trying to convince me that I wasn't there. Another fan tells Time Magazine, quote, it feels like an out-of-body experience, as though it didn't really happen to me. Yet I know it did because my bank account <laughs> took a $950 hit to cover the ticket. I'm back with Lee Zeldin and Ellie Honig, obvious Swifties themselves. Um, Ellie, you've seen this up close and personal. I what had, happened? I had a remarkable experience this weekend. I stayed at my cousin's house and her daughter, who's 17, went to the Taylor Swift concert in North Jersey with three other teenage girls. And I saw the next day. Let me tell you. It was as if they had seen the face of God herself. <laughs> they were giddy. They were elated. They were ecstatic. And I asked her, the 17-year-old today, in preparation for this, I said, do you remember everything? And she said, you know, there's a part at the end that I have no memory of. She brought, Taylor Swift brought some guest singer on the stage. And my friends said that happened. And she said, I have no memory. So I guess she blanked out or something out of pure ecstasy. Wow. Is Taylor <laughs> Swift hypnotizing people? What's happening, Congressman? My daughters are 16 years old. They, they love Taylor Swift. We have not yet been in a Taylor Swift concert. Aside from the fact that the ticket prices are as high as they are, this story is now actually making me want to go to the concert with them. Yes. <laughs> to and see monitor, exactly yes. what we're talking about here, because this sounds like uh, right. quite an experience. Uh, and my daughters, I'm sure, would love it. So I don't know. It causes some something bad to the brain or something it's good. Just, we'll it's just like it's it's so euphoric and so exciting that somehow a part of your brain turns off. I've never heard of this before. Usually those things are in technicolor. You, like yeah. an intense experience is more memorable, but somehow this is not. You have an illustrious history of concert going yourself. I mean, have you ever? I've been to Springsteen concerts. For a guy from Jersey, that's like yeah. you know, that's like, like yeah. seeing. Uh, a, I have broken this, down but. crying at concerts. Like it was. The oh, they yes, cried too. I asked them. I said, "Did you <laughs> cry?" And they, <laughs> they were like, "Constantly." Oh, that's yeah. awesome. All right, please go and report back to us immediately after you it. go. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. All right, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are going to be here, and we have breaking news. The Senate just passed the debt ceiling bill. We have much more to come. We'll take you to Capitol Hill for the exact numbers and how it all came to pass, and our reporters will weigh in, too. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me, Sarah Fisher, Polo Sandoval, Danny Freeman and Elena Treen. Also joining us with the breaking news, Melanie 
Zanona from Capitol Hill. Melanie, has the U.S. avoided economic catastrophe at this hour? They have, Allison, but just barely with just a few days to go before that default deadline and really just a few votes to spare here. The final vote tally was 63 to 36, and they needed 60 votes to be able to pass this in the Senate. But I want to give you the breakdown of who voted in support. It was 46 Democrats who voted in favor, along with 17 Republicans. That was the coalition that banded together to get this over the finish line. And that means that the opposition was mostly Republicans here with just five Democrats voting against this bill. But ultimately, they got it done. It now heads to President Biden's desk for signature. And it was no easy feat to get here because there was opposition on both sides of the aisle. Democrats did not like the stricter work requirements for food stamp recipients. They didn't like some of the energy permitting reform. And Republicans thought the bill didn't go far enough in order to limit spending. They also don't like that it's going to hike the debt ceiling until 2025. They wanted it a shorter debt ceiling hike so they could get another bite at the apple. But this was really a big test for the leadership, both for President Biden, for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, really for all the party leadership here. And all the while, the economy was hanging in the balance. And at the end of the day, that's really what was driving a lot of members to support this deal, even those who didn't like the deal. They felt like they had to swallow it and that they did not want an economic catastrophe. So that's the bottom line here. Mm. They did avert a crisis, but just barely out. And, and so, Melanie, you've been on Capitol Hill all day. I mean, for, for days, weeks about this. So just take us behind the scenes. Is this what was expected? Are these numbers and this close a margin? Is this what people were anticipating all day? Well, there was a really big bipartisan vote in the House. There was over 300 members who supported this, and they only needed 218. So the thinking was that it was going to give a huge boost of momentum for things over in the Senate. But in the last hours here, there was a lot of concern expressed from defense hawks, appropriators, really Republicans from all across the conference who had various different concerns here. But in terms of whether this was expected, Allison, we did know that or expect that they were going to be able to pass this. But it was never a sure thing because throughout this process, there were blowups, there was breakdowns. You really had these officials from the White House and the Speaker's office sitting down trying to hammer hammer out a complicated fiscal agreement, something that usually would take months to figure out. And they had to do it in a matter of weeks. Not to mention Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he's new to the leadership position. He was really an untested leader. Him and Biden didn't have the same working relationship that him and Mitch McConnell had. But in the end, they got it done, Allison. Melanie, thank you very much. We want to go live now to Majority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking about this. Maybe a little tired, but we did it. So we're very, very happy. Default was the giant sword hanging over America's head. But because of the good work of President Biden, as well as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, we are not defaulting. Democrats said from the start, we must take default off the table. For a long time, Republicans, many Republicans in the House resisted. House Republicans were ready to take default hostage in order to pass a radical, hard-right agenda that never could have passed with the American people. So tonight's outcome is very welcome news for our economy and for American families. I thank my colleagues for the good work tonight. I commend President Biden and his team for producing a sensible compromise under the most difficult of circumstances. So many of the destructive provisions in the Republican bill are gone. Uh, Because we persisted 
and we kept insisting that default is off the table, we will not be defaulting. And we will not be passing the hard rights extreme agenda, virtually no part of it. And that is thanks to the Senate and House Democrats and to President Biden. But don't just listen to me. The proof is in the pudding. House Democrats swept the vote 34 to 117. A higher percentage and number of Democrats voted for this in the House than Republicans did. And it was just repeated in the Senate. Overwhelming majority of Senate Democrats voted for the bill. A majority of Republicans voted against it. And it's not just how Democrats carry the bill to the finish line, but why. Why did we get more votes? We got more votes because the bill beat back the worst of the Republican agenda. This exercise was a, uh, basically, this was an exercise in where the American people were at, and they're much closer to where we are than where they are. Of course, nobody got everything they wanted. There was give on both sides. But this agreement was a very good outcome because it accomplished three extremely important goals. First and foremost, we prevented a catastrophic default that would have decimated our economy, raised costs, and inflicted immense unnecessary pain on tens and tens and tens of millions of American families. Second, the bill preserves the lion's share of the historic investments we've made to grow our economy, fix our infrastructure, make the U.S. more competitive on the world stage, which the Republican caucus in the House seemed intent on tearing down. They didn't get to do that. And third, and very importantly, we did a very good job of taking the worst parts of the Republican plan that would have hurt so many families, and we took those worst parts off the table. Let me say it again. Tonight's vote is a good outcome because Democrats did a very good job taking the worst parts of the Republican plan off the table, and that's why Dems voted overwhelmingly for this bill, while Republicans certainly in the Senate did not. Remember what House Republicans originally wanted when they showed us their plan, and compare it to the bill we're now sending to the President's desk. The difference is as stark as night and day. Republicans wanted to gut investments we made in the IRA and the Inflation Reduction Act that are driving a new generation of American manufacturing, billions and billions of investments, and thousands upon thousands of jobs. We fought and fought. We have been listening there to Majority Leader Chuck Schumer taking a victory lap because the Senate has just uh, passed the debt ceiling bill, which is what we've spoken about for so many weeks because it could have been catastrophic economically and globally. Um, interesting, guys. Uh, not the most conciliatory tone. Um, he got in several digs at his Republican colleagues and he kind of revisited what he said were them holding this, you know, debt ceiling hostage. It's just an interesting tone for tonight, which is a successful night. I also I didn't see I didn't hear the words McCarthy in that. Right. A lot of a lot of House Democrats, a lot of Senate uh, Democrats. I didn't hear the word McCarthy in that speech at all, in fact. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is certainly not kind of the kumbaya moment that nobody expected after this uh, period of compromise. And it's something that clearly, according to the senator from New York, is not something that we'll be hearing. But this doesn't last forever, right? And Alina, like, we're going to have to revisit this a couple years down the road when we need to vote on this again. Like, why do we keep getting put... Yeah, 2025. (laughs) So, like, why do we keep getting put in this position? Are we ever going to come to a moment 
where you think these two parties can pass something and we're not down to the very last minute? Or do you think this is just the way our country operates? It's not the way our country operates. It's the way Congress operates. Um, they are. I mean, it's so classic every time. And it's not just with this debt ceiling. We're going to see this again later this year when it comes to averting a government shutdown and funding the government. They're probably going to do this again. They go right up to the deadline. And then that's when everything magically comes together. And everyone tonight was referring to this is the term we use on Capitol Hill. They call it Senate magic when you can move through things so quickly. We saw that tonight. Um, partly because they knew that nothing would change in the bill. They had to get this done to avert a default, but they also wanted to enjoy their weekends. Um, but you asked a good question, Sarah. I think a big part of this as well that a lot of people in Congress are talking about is why do we do this every time with the debt ceiling? Why does this have to be a massive fight, go up to the edge and make the debt ceiling something that we hold <coughs> parties hostage over. And that's what they did here. And it doesn't necessarily have to, like, there is definitely a conversation that is happening both in Washington and on Capitol Hill, but also within the financial community about whether there should be a fight every year or every two years over the debt ceiling and whether, I mean, a lot of what they fought about in this current negotiation um, and this bill that they just passed was about the budget. And that's something that normally is negotiated at the end of September, at the end of the fiscal year. Instead, Republicans really held Democrats um, to task here over this and forced budget negotiations to be a part of this because everyone knows that you need to pass a debt limit suspension. You need to raise the debt ceiling and avoid a default. And so because of that, they try to find leverage in it. And that's why we consistently see this be such a controversial negotiation. But they did it this time. And uh they avoided default. Yeah, I mean, it does, <clears throat> excuse me, it does start to feel like the boy who cried wolf because mm-hmm. we do go through this exercise so often. But, you know, we're happy that they did it. And the White House announcing that President Biden will address the nation tomorrow night on all of this, on averting default and this bipartisan budget agreement. CNN, of course, will cover it live. That is tomorrow night at 7 Eastern. Let's go back to Melanie for a moment. So, Melanie, it's interesting. I mean, there was a moment where they could have taken pride in it being bipartisan. And as we've been discussing, you know, it was McCarthy and Biden coming together and having to compromise. But that was not the tone that Senator (laughs) Schumer took tonight. No, because, Allison, it's it's politics here. I think each side in the room, they obviously had to come together and find a compromise. But they also needed to find a deal that they could walk away with and sell to their members. And... You have to understand both Chuck Schumer and Speaker Kevin McCarthy were facing internal pressures from their respective flanks, the right flanks and their left flanks, who were really unhappy with how this deal turned out. But something else that really stood out to me was the way Chuck Schumer was framing the messaging there. He was touting what wasn't in the bill and what they were able to protect. They talked about the fact that they were able to avert any cuts to Medicaid. That was something that Republicans wanted in their bill that they had passed on a party line vote in the House, whereas Republican messaging is focused on all the things they did get in the bill, the impacts on spending, the permitting reform, the debt ceiling hike, a number of things, that clawing back IRS funding, unspent COVID money, a number of priorities. But at the end of the day, as Chuck Schumer alluded to, not everyone's going to love what's in the deal. And that is usually the sign of a true compromise in Washington. There you go. Melanie Zanona, thank you for bringing us the moment by moment developments and the uh, finishing, you know, reaching the finish line. Really helpful. Thank you. All right. It is raining over pride parades in Florida this month in the wake of fears that the Sunshine State's new law may shut down drag performances. So we're going to go there live next.
June 1st is the start of Pride Month, and that usually means parades and celebrations will be taking place across the country. My panel is back with me, and we are also joined by my old work husband, now estranged, Victor Blackwell, who I miss all the time. He's in uh, live in Orlando for us. Victor, hey, it's Allison. so great to see you. Um, so tell us what, what will Pride events look like in Florida nowadays with new laws? Well, you know, these events, even with all the excitement and the events, they always require a degree of vigilance, uh, but especially so this year, not only because of the climate that we're seeing, but also because of this new law, the protection of children that many believe targets public drag shows. Um, it, It doesn't mention the word drag at all, but because of some of the references Uh, It could be used to create some consequences around these parades and events here at Pride. Uh, There are organizers, there are cities who don't know if it will be enforced, but they cannot afford to take that risk. Pride across Florida will be noticeably less colorful this year. Festival organizers are making significant changes or canceling altogether some LGBTQ plus celebrations. They fear potential consequences from Governor Ron DeSantis' new law that many believe targets public drag performances, a mainstay of Pride events. Welcome, welcome to St. Cloud's first Pride event. It's very disheartening. Christina Bozinich, coordinator of Pride in St. Cloud, canceled the Orlando area event that was planned to include drag performers. According to the new law signed by DeSantis just weeks ago, local governments are banned from issuing public permits for events that include some adult live performances. Venues risk steep fines and losing licensing if a child is present. Knowingly admitting a child would be a first-degree misdemeanor. Once the bill was signed, I said, we can restructure the event. We'll make sure it's only 18 and up for that portion. Um, They went and talked with all the performers and came back to me and said, We're really sorry, but we just don't feel safe. Organizers in Port St. Lucie canceled its annual Pride Parade. They reached an agreement with the city to host a slimmed-down festival. Drag performers were welcome, but anyone under 21 was not. I was in the closet for so many years, and I still face hatred and oppression, and I can't even go to my own Pride Fest. Kissimmee Pride is on, but drag, indoors only. For example, drag bingo will be taking place inside of our Civic Center. And it will be an event where we will be requiring IDs. And we're also asking folks to go ahead and pre-register online to participate. John Panessa's Orlando restaurant Hamburger Mary's hosts drag shows most nights. He's filed a federal lawsuit against the state. He claims he's losing business because of the new law. DeSantis's office has not responded to a CNN request for comment on the lawsuit. We have a street party with a stage with the performers out front during Pride. We usually get three or 4,000 people on the street watching. That's something we can't do. At the start of a month, that's in part a celebration of visibility. Some feel that the Sunshine State is shoving them back into darkness. Now with uh, the governor stepping in and the legislation that's going through, it's, we're moving back in time. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate for us and everybody else in the state because what they're doing, it's heartbreaking. Victor, it is so interesting because it's one thing to read a law in black and white on paper, and then it's another to see the real world impact, which is what you're showing us. And so in terms of the numbers of people who turn out, you know, just to support, just to see the parade, just to have fun, what are they expecting this year? Will they be drastically lower numbers? Well, the answer to that is they don't know. I mean, right here in central Florida, the big show here is uh, Gay Days. 
Typically, north of 150,000 people come here to Central Florida for events and parties, and they go to the theme parks and wear red shirts um, to be seen. The point is visibility. But people are split here. Some say that this is not the time to shrink. With these new laws, uh, more than 400 by some counts across the country, and certainly the laws here in Florida, this is the time to stand up as an element of, of resistance and resilience. Others say that the threats are real. What we're seeing in department stores, uh, what we're seeing uh, graffiti and, and vandalism that's targeted at the gay community, that people just cannot take that physical risk. So they really don't know how many people are going to show up. Today uh, was the start of the festivals. Victor, this is Elena here. Um, thank you for that. I mean, I agree with Allison. To see the real world impact of these laws is, is really moving. Are, are people moving out of Florida, do you know, because of these laws? Have people of the LGBT community decided that they no longer feel like they can live in the state and they need to leave in order to feel like they can be a part of their community and they can celebrate in the way that we're seeing on um, on tape here? Listen, anecdotally, um, Christina Bozinich, who I spoke with, she said that she has friends who uh, are leaving. Uh, she has parents, uh, friends who have children who are of the, the LGBTQ community, who they just don't feel that their children are safe, so they're making plans to leave. Um, we don't have statistics to show that there is some mass exodus from Florida because of the change in these laws, but there are all the stories here of people who say that, listen, I don't feel safe here, um, and they're making plans to, to go to other places where they, they feel like they can have that degree of security. Yeah, Polo has a question for you too. Well, it really, it's, it's he answered yeah. part of it, which is the that this is also a moment for people in the community to send a clear message to a presidential candidate by attending Gay Days, Victor. So, do you get a sense of that on the ground when you speak to people there that they are there to send a message specifically to perhaps the governor? Yeah, some are certainly um, here to, to send a message, and again. Part of pride is visibility. Part of pride is resistance. Um, you know, the first pride more than 50 years ago now was led in part by drag queens standing up not just to uh, the potential for uh, jailing or um, uh, some legal consequence, but physical violence. Uh, and there are some pride uh, events across this area who say that in that spirit, they will show up. Specifically on the element of drag, I think we sent into you uh, one of the events for Gay Days is Drag Queen Bingo, in which uh, many other uh, organizations and and festivals across the state, they're putting uh, their drag events uh, behind uh, closed doors. They're requiring ID. But if you look at the advertisement in red letters, highlighted in yellow, it says all ages welcome. Um, We spoke with the CEO of Gay Days. He says they're not doing anything wrong. Um, They have invited the governor to come to uh, Drag Queen Bingo. That's not going to happen. But they're saying that, listen, what we are doing is not offensive. We are not doing anything lewd. um, And they're moving on as expected. Let me add one other thing here. Um, The hotel lit up behind me notwithstanding. I lived in Florida for for several years. um, And I've been in this part of the state during Pride Month. And typically... It is covered in rainbow bunting. I mean, because there are so many people who come here, we're not seeing as much of that. We had to look for space for a live shot relevant to the story tonight. Um, Is that all? It's hard to to prove a negative, but is that all 
uh, blamed on the new laws here? Um, possibly not. Maybe these businesses are also watching what happens at, at Target and the backlash they're receiving, the backlash against Budweiser, uh, the proposed boycott against Chick-fil-A for their new DEI uh, posting as well. So we're not seeing every storefront covered in pride displays as we typically would see. Now, I make allowance for this being day one. Maybe that will change. But it's not like it has been in at least the last five or, or 10 years across this part of Florida, having been here for a couple of days now. Well, it's hard to imagine that that's a coincidence um, and that yeah. it isn't being impacted by the new laws. So helpful, Victor, to have you there on the ground for us to give us the real flavor of what's happening and what it looks like there. Uh, great to see you, as always. and uh, Come back again and report anytime on this show. I hope to see you soon. I will be back when I'm invited. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> All right, now to this, the survivors of the mass shooting at the Pittsburgh synagogue taking the stand today. And Danny's going to bring us what that was like right after this. More survivors of the 2018 mass shooting at the Tree of Life synagogue testifying today at the shooter's death penalty trial. This afternoon, an officer who was disabled in the shooting took the stand. And Danny, I know you were in Pittsburgh earlier for us this week um, covering this trial. So tell us what's been happening in court. Yeah, I mean, it, the past couple of days, the trial just started on Tuesday. We had opening statements from both the defense and the prosecution. And then every hour after hour for the past three days have just been survivor after survivor. We've heard some some radio uh, dispatches of 911 dispatches as well. Uh, we've heard 911 calls. It's It's been... Uh, an emotionally challenging and intense couple of days. But just you asked specifically about today, and you mentioned that officer. We, we, like I said, we've seen and heard from a number of different people. The officer, particularly his name was Daniel Mead. Uh, he was at the police station, which is actually just a couple of blocks from the physical synagogue. He testified that he ran over. That's how close he was to the actual synagogue with his partner. Um, he was there for only a few moments when the gunman, Robert Bowers, uh, shot him and he described how his hand basically exploded. Um, and again, just one of the many, many uh, horrific and terrifying and just very visceral testimonies that we've heard over the past couple of days. You know, Danny, it's so interesting. I think that I know I've had this experience. And I'm sure all of you have had this experience reporting. A lot of people out in the public come up and say, how can you do it? How can you report on something so devastating? How do you not cry? How do you stay sane? How do you hear these stories again and again? Do you have a system for when you're reporting something very emotional, what you do? Uh, listen, I mean, I think that what I would say first is that I think that, you know, sometimes reporters, I mean, we do get emotional. Sometimes we do cry and we do, you can't not feel it. And again, we've been listening to these 911 calls, you know, where you hear in some cases, some of these uh, congregation members, some of their last moments, but, uh, and you hear the gunfire, you know, that, that, that uh, takes them. Uh, but I think in this particular case, and I'm sure the others have experienced this in other uh, instances, perhaps of mass shootings, we saw with Shimon and Uvaldi, right? There are a lot of people who want these stories to be told. And that's that's our job. And that's how I get through it, frankly, is, you know, you know that you're there to make sure what happens in that courtroom gets out to the public because it's horrible. Uh, it's, uh, you know, they're proving right now the prosecution, they're trying to prove that it was based and steeped in hate. And that's worth shining a light on. 
I totally agree. That, 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 and I'm glad that you ch- said that because um, we never force anybody to go on camera. Yeah. They come to us and they tell us mm-hmm. their story because mm-hmm. they want their story told and they want their loved ones um, not to have been killed in vain, you know? And I'll just say quickly, you know, this is an interesting case because we're seeing some exhibits, right? Every day we get a little bit more, some photographs from inside, some new body camera footage that we haven't had. But a lot of the most intense stuff, the public we'll never see. We, the public won't hear some of those 911 calls because there was a court order that said they're too graphic and they won't be put out. So again, it, it feels more important to as accurately and perhaps graphically describe what we're hearing because otherwise the public won't know what it sounds like and, and what happened on that day in 2018. After that shooting, there felt like there was a chilling effect in terms of all temples around the country. You're seeing you know, barriers being put up in front of them to protect various temples from things like this. Did they talk about that at all at trial, what this particular shooting meant for the entire Jewish community in America? You know, we haven't gotten to that specifically yet, but I will say that, I mean, you can see the impact just in the process of going to court. The uh, families and a lot of members of the Jewish community in general in Pittsburgh have been coming to court every single day. They've been coming uh, on a bus. A lot of them get together and they meet up and and drive to the federal courthouse and they're given a police escort. I mean, there is a lot of intentionality with protecting uh, this community. And I think you see it in that regard. And, you know, one other thing about that, Sarah, um, I did speak to at the time when this was happening, one of the security firms who was providing security for lots of synagogues around the country. And I believe that Rabbi Myers at the Tree of Life, had recently had a simulation. I think that he had gone through a security exercise, and that is part of what helped him and others survive. There were a few testimonies that we heard that specifically said that. One person wondered, is this a drill maybe? Because we recently had drills like this. And then someone said, "Someone said there, were, there are some moments of levity. Somebody said, no one would have a drill like this on my Shabbat morning. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man, I... Yeah, so. Yes, understood. That's what they did have a drill. I now remember that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, thank you very much for all of your reporting of from course. there. Okay, meanwhile, this story the National Eating Disorders Association shut down their manned phone line and instead started using a chat bot to give advice to people in distress. You can imagine things went wrong. Sarah's going to tell us about this right after this. The National Eating Disorders Association says it's shut down its AI-powered chat bot that was called Tessa after the bot started offering harmful advice to callers. Sarah, this is um, a disturbing story. First of all, did they know they were talking to a bot? And what kind of advice was this bot giving out? It wasn't great advice, Allison. We had people on Twitter explaining some of the things that they were being told. One of the things that we had heard from somebody who's a weight loss consultant said that Tessa recommended that I weigh and measure myself weekly. She recommended that I purchase and use skin calipers to determine body composition. She gave suggestions on where to purchase those calipers. She also right, recommended- Right, the things that like pinch your skin exactly. and it tells you how, what your body to fat measure is. Measure your visceral fat, exactly right. And she also said that Tessa recommended that she should lose one to two pounds per week and that she counter calories and work out so that she could have a 500 to 1,000 calorie deficit per day. That's the worst thing to advise somebody going through an eating disorder. 
especially because it's astronomical, right? A deficit of a thousand calories a day is just extraordinary and not healthy. But the thing that stands out to me was the question that you first asked. Do people know that they're talking to a chatbot? This has been a huge problem with AI, especially since the advent of ChatGPT. I will clarify that the National Association of Eating Disorders said that this is not a ChatGPT bot. They actually started rolling this out in beta in February 2022. So this was before the most recent iteration. But one of the challenges is a lot of times we are interacting with these chat services and we assume that they're people. Sometimes you might really know that it's a bot because the language doesn't seem right. But for the more sophisticated ones, it's confusing. And for instances like this, where you need to get critical information, emergency information, health information, having an understanding about what and who it is that you're talking to, I think makes a big difference. Do you think, Sarah, in that they're going to do something about this at the federal level or in Congress to make these disclosures more known in public? Possibly. So right now, Congress is just trying to wrap their head around what to do with AI in general. We saw a few weeks ago, the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, came to Congress. And I actually thought it was a very productive hearing. The challenge, Elena, with a lot of these big tech laws coming through Congress is that Republicans and Democrats cannot get over the mutual understanding of censorship. In one sense, disclosure seems so nonchalant, right? What's the big deal? But on another, if you're forcing somebody to disclose an identity versus not, these are the types of things that become heavily politicized. What I'm hopeful for, though, is that the market will hopefully try to figure out a solution for itself because consumers want the real stuff. They want good answers. We're not going to settle for having search engines or chatbots give us false information if we know it's false. This case... Clearly, this weight loss consultant tweeted about it because she knew that this was not good information. Can you guys believe that we might be talking to a chatbot and not know it? I mean, what does that even sound like? Well, but here's here's my question, though, is because I actually am of the mind now, especially since you just said that this has been out since 2022, that I think we're talking to a lot more chatbots every single day and Mm -hmm. actually don't Mm -hmm. realize it. Right. I mean, like, you know, I'm I'm thinking any we were talking about this, any customer service thing probably are chatbots at this point. Right. A hundred percent. So. Just to give you a sense, the call service industry is a $25 billion industry. So when you need to call your airline or your local store or grocer or anything to get customer service, you would for a long time be dispatched to somebody. Typically, it would be somebody overseas who would help you with your services. AI can overnight displace that industry, right? And it can do it in a really cheap and efficient way. And there are some benefits to consumers. Like AI can be really fast. In some cases, it might be able to pull up things like phone numbers more quickly for you than a potential human would. But the huge challenge, Danny, is that people don't always know when they're talking to these bots. They sometimes think they're humans. And that becomes an issue when it's highly personal communications, things like your health. Now, I do want to read a statement from the National Association for Eating Disorders because they sort of explained how we got to this point. And I think that's relevant here. So one of the things that they had said was that it came to their attention last night that the current version of this Tessa chatbot, remember the one that they started in February 2022, running what was a body positivity program may have given information that was harmful and unrelated to the program. They say that they're investigating this immediately and that they've taken down the program until further notice for a complete investigation. But I also want to note just some backdrop here. There was also a report that they had been, you know, potentially letting go of some of the humans that were responding to a different program. And so it begs the question, is this something that's happening in businesses all around America, right? Where we should have humans who are responding to people, especially, again, for things like health, and emergency communications, but we're displacing them with chatbots because it's easier and it's cheaper. Yeah, this is, you, know, you talk about the, the future of the industry, and, and I think what you said is, is so important. It, it probably, 
the weight is on the industry versus Congress, because if we learned anything, especially at the top of the show, is that usually the industry will evolve a lot fa faster than Congress. But really, it's almost a test for AI in terms of how it can respond to these issues that you highlight. And one would say this almost is a failure of it. Yes. And you know what's really challenging about this? AI is a type of technology that needs to get smarter over time with more inputs and more stress testing. Right. It and needs so, more data. Exactly. Yeah. And so one of the challenges here is that in order to make AI better and more effective, we actually need to put it out into the real world and let some bad things happen, which is oh. awful. But that's how, by the way, I just want to you know, say this is how technology has evolved over time, right? It took decades. This is the example big tech always gives when they're in front of Congress. It took decades for us to put seatbelts into law for cars, right? It took decades for us to figure out on every single road where you put stoplights. I'm not saying this is the same thing. Right, because seatbelts weren't going rogue. And seatbelts weren't, like, giving us bad advice and telling <laughs> us telling to hurt you to ourselves. Count. And this right. is also, <laughs> I mean, such a ourselves. horrible yeah. example of it, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, To your point quickly about going rogue, yeah. though, these answers sound authoritative when they're actually entirely and sometimes made up. That was not necessarily the issue with cars. Yeah. Um, thank you, Sarah. Really important. And I, we do this all the time because everybody just needs to buckle up to run with your seatbelt metaphor because it's, it's happening. It's happening around us and we're not even aware of it. Thank you for all of that. Okay. Also, protests across Florida over Governor Ron DeSantis' new immigration law. So Polo has that story for us right after this very quick break. A day without immigrants. That's what organizers are calling the protests in various parts of the country today, especially Florida. They're protesting a new immigration law signed by Governor Ron DeSantis that imposes penalties on employers who hire illegal migrants. Oh, has more on this law. Okay, so tell us about the protests and, and what the point is here. So with one month before this new law kicks in that was signed by Governor DeSantis back on May 10th, basically what we saw are these protesters in Florida and some other states that wanted to show the world what it would look like without immigrants. So that's what we saw, not only many of these protests, but our colleagues in Florida today, today reporting on some of these widespread closures. There were many businesses that were closing up shop in a show of solidarity. Uh, now, I want to break down exactly what this will do uh, in the coming month. One this actually kicks in. We actually have a breakdown. Not only does it supplement the governor's migrant relocation program, but it will also require some hospitals to collect patient immigration status. It also invalidates the out-of-state ID cards or driver's licenses that have been issued to undocumented people. But the top two are really the hot-button issue and really beyond, which is requiring employers with 25 employees or more to check the immigration status of their new employees. And those that do not comply this could face very hefty fines of about $1,000 a day per person. Supporters of all this, including, of course, Governor DeSantis saying that this is, quote, the strongest anti-illegal immigration law in the country. Um, so this is what we expect in the coming days. And this is why we saw this massive show of support uh, while, again, the governor standing by this as it kicks in in about uh, four weeks. I am so, I mean... And this is great reporting, especially as we're talking about 2024. Yeah. DeSantis this week is campaigning in all of the early presidential states. Because it's Florida, I'm so curious how this is going to play out. Like we saw Governor DeSantis with sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And um, I know other governors have done that as well. But because Florida has a lot of Cuban immigrants, a lot of people came from Venezuela. Like I'm, I'm so fascinated to see how this could affect Politics, and I also think it's fascinating to see if the what they're doing will have an impact 
on actually change some of these laws across the country and showing like one of the biggest issues that I'm covering in Congress when it comes to the immigration debate is about visas and about, you know, it's not just migrants coming. Yes, not just migrants coming across the border, but how they're so necessary for a ton of jobs that people don't even realize that, you know, they're needed for. And so um, this is great reporting, but I, I'm really interested to see how this plays out, particularly in Florida, as you're saying. Polo. And the backlog of those work authorizations, too, which exactly. is a separate issue that we've talked about right here. Now, the other question, too, is how will this affect business? It's still too early to see exactly what can't, like all the closures that we saw today, what, how that's going to affect the economy. But also, when you think about just farm workers in general, I was looking over some statistics from the Farm Workers Association of Florida saying that, on average, they have about 500,000 farm workers in Florida. Uh, and that the uh, organization they're suspecting that about 300,000 of them are undocumented. So you can just imagine what that community is going to feel and why many of them uh, have stepped forward saying they'd rather go elsewhere. There was one, uh, one asylum seeker who I met here uh, last, uh, last year in New York. After a hurricane de- devastated parts of Florida, he traveled down to Florida to help in the cleanup efforts, but now he plans to come right back because of this new law. So in the world of business and politics, we all know sometimes business really speaks louder. So it'll be interesting to hear and to see what some of these rural farmers do because this has the potential to affect their workforce. In terms of the businesses, these are not just um, farm workers, but these are also consumers, right? So these are people who eat at restaurants. These are people who purchase uh, merchandise. We only have 10 seconds left, but also the idea that you're going to have your immigration status checked when you're going to a hospital or an emergency room, that is really... um, going to be a challenge because obviously hospitals don't aren't supposed to turn anybody away. Uh, Paula, thank you very much for bringing this reporting to us and alerting us to this. All right. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, Bill Weir on a dramatic decision in Arizona to limit new construction because there's not enough groundwater to go around. Our thanks to all of our fabulous reporters tonight. Thank you for watching. And our coverage continues now.